Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I am the host of Talk Design. Now, I started this podcast because I have a fascination and a passion for design. My own life has been a story of design from when I was a small child right through till today. And I love design. I love what it does. I love how it interacts with people. I love how it makes people's lives better. So I started the podcast so that we could talk to and unwrap design thinking from all kinds of experts around the world. In my interview with Jason Boyer, we dug into lots of things from his past, the journey to the present, and some of the successes he's had along the way, of which there's many. Because we went for so long, we've split it into two episodes. In episode one, we will follow Jason's journey up until he started his art house project. Now, his art house project has been a huge success, and his whole theme around it was how do I give people better architecture to live in whilst doing a multi res development? From there, he created Boyer Vertical, which has taken him from art house through to Karma, which is his latest development. So, Episode one is the journey to that. Episode two is going to take you into the depths of what his intentions are and where he's gone in the future. I hope you enjoy them both. I look forward to your feedback. Please send us an email. Let us know what you thought. Cheers. My guest on Talk Design today is Jason Boyer, and he has a company in Phoenix, Arizona called Boyer Vertical. Jason is a highly acclaimed architect. He's a sought-after teacher. He has awards more than we can count. One of the things that he's done, though, is he's pivoted his business in the last couple of years into not what's new, but what's traditionally broken into multiple areas and I really wanted to dig in with Jason and talk about his business now but also the journey that got him here and why he's doing it what what his philosophies are what his passions are and let's dig in and see what there is to learn from Jason because it's going to be a lot you're going to get lots from this one so thank you for listening and Jason welcome to Talk Design. Thank you for having me Adrian this will this will be fun I'm looking forward to it. Oh, absolute pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to it as well. I've had a few guys in on the show from uh, Arizona, from Phoenix. It's a place that, uh, funnily enough, I've been to a few times, um, but not don't know it well. It's not a space that I know really well. Um, and every time I go to Palm Springs, I go, I should just make the drive that extra few hours and, and get out there. But my times always seem so limited when I'm traveling. Um, but a beautiful part of the country for sure. It, it is, and uh, happy to host you when you're next here, huh? Oh, man, I'd love that. I'd love that. I think there's a few different places that I need to get to, and it'd be fun to get a few of the guys that have been on as well um, together. That'd yeah, be that'd great. be cool. There's, there's some amazing 
architecture here to, to, to look at and the scenery and uh, landscape is, is, you know, it's all about the horizon and the desert. Yeah, isn't it? I'm a big, big fan, even though I live in the subtropics, I'm a big fan of desert architecture, uh, something that's really close to my heart. And I love the, the expansiveness and the colors of desert, you know, where, where you get a toned down palette, but the minute you look a little further, you suddenly yeah. see all the color. The color's there for you. You've just got to look for it, you know. Otherwise, you miss it. You just look past it all. Yeah, true, true, very true. That's the desert. Desert is is full of amazing color. You yeah. just got to look look deeper. Yeah, you have to take the time to be with it instead of just scanning over it. You know, yeah, uh, that's sure. one of the things I love about it, and I love the um the climate of a desert as well. You've got a really dry desert climate, and it's a there's something about that. The cold's cold and the heat's heat. Um, but it's not necessarily like where I live is a bit more like Florida. So, um, yeah, you get the humidity and stuff like that as well. I like the simplicity of it's either hot or it's cold. It's like. <laughs> it, is, and it's, it switches remarkably fast. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Tell me, um, first of all, a bit of runway on you as a human, like what you could have probably chosen to do anything with your creative skills, obviously good business skills and also high analytics. How did you end up drawing boxes? You know, what, what, what happened that got you there? Geez. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe I, I was sort of programmed by the, the Lego people early. They hooked me. I gotcha. As a kid, you know, I was a big Lego freak. I guess I liked to draw and um, my my dad was always doing projects around the house I would help him with. And so I was always doing things and making models or being outside, running around building forts. And, yeah. um, you know, it was just a combination of those kinds of things. And plus, you know, back back in the day when I was in school, they, they still offered like technical classes, uh -huh. you know, so, yeah. There was a little bit more arts and, and like technical drawing and uh, drafting and things like that. And so I was, I guess I was always interested in those things. And uh, it just naturally sort of came together that made sense that I would try to be an architect. And did you know growing up as a kid, like that there were architects? Like I often talk to people and they go, I had no idea that there was people who did this as a profession. Um yeah, so I'm yeah, like, really? Like, that's a, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that. Um, I don't think I did. And, and in fact, you know, if I think back about, you know, my exposure to architecture, I mean, e even when I went, to, I went to um, school, the University of Illinois, mm -hmm. which is a, a pretty uh, acclaimed uh, school for producing solid architects. Just a little. <laughs> traditional Beaux Arts education, but they crank them out. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a great school. Um, but it, and it taught me all of the basics. But I don't. I don't even know if I still knew what I was doing when I got out of there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I went, I went you know, work for a year, and then I, then I went to moved to the desert to go to ASU for grad school. Uh huh. And it was it was there that I think I kind of started to learn. I'm like 21 years old and I'm just learning to think for myself. Yeah. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, uh, yeah. You, yeah. Well, I think it took me till about 41 to think for myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I still try and avoid it. <laughs> but, but you know, you know, but yeah, that, you start to discover who you might be. Yeah. I, I, I remember that point. It was towards the end of my, my experience at, at ASU where I was sort of had this, like, I think I know how to like have a critical conversation yeah. and think about things. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it, so I, I don't know, I guess it took me 23 years to figure out, you know, what an architect could be, but early on, I didn't have any exposure. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, which is, uh, a relatively, well, at the time it was the second largest city in, in Illinois okay. uh, outside yeah. of Chicago. Yeah. Um, but you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in downtown looking at the Sears tower or, you know, or anything. Yeah. Any, that, anything. No major influence that kind no, of ran across your a, path. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess mine was, I was just exposed to these things, um, throughout, um, school, uh, in, in high school and whatnot. And I uh -huh. was interested in it. And that's, that's, I, I guess, kind of organically just, I, I just went to the went with the flow that took you down the path. You know, I, yeah. I, I was talking to a, a, an architect out of Austin and he was saying, he, I said, so, you know, similar question. So I said to him, Hugh, how did you end up like this? And he said, well, I lived in, I think it was Houston in the street or in the suburb where all the astronauts lived. And he said, I saw mid-century modern homes that these astronauts lived in because I played with those kids at school. And mm -hmm. he said, it just stunned him. He'd never seen a home like it before. And then he was around them a whole lot. And he said, he just started pulling it apart in his head and went, I need to, I love this. I need to do this. And, you know, like, or else, you know, somebody like I've got another friend who's um, her grandfather was an architect in Chicago, you know? And so, she became yeah. an architect because her grandfather was an architect and her grandmother used to drive them around and say, oh, your grandfather designed this building or designed this building, you know. But there's this sort of like, how do you end up in this, this thing being architecture? And it has such a vast impact on other people's lives. And yet we, I don't think many people go into it with that thought. They, they, uh, just, yeah. they discover it once they're in it. Yeah, I, I to totally agree. And that point is maybe, uh, you know, take a moment to sort of advocate that if, if there's something that should be added to a kind of basic level education that you receive in, in you know, uh, you know, in, in high school yep. and, and certainly in college, there should be some classical education of, of architecture because it has the ability to really change people's lives um and um it's it's not it's not openly taught in that way i don't i don't even remember it being talked about when i was at school yeah 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 so yeah. In, in in some ways it's it's only been i mean it, it's, it's not always very accessible mm. um and uh it should be more accessible in a broader education standpoint so that so that uh, you grow up understanding the value of it yeah it 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 seriously like without you know overstating it or understating it it changes people's lives it's um 100 
how, how you live, where you live, what you touch, um, you know, the air that you breathe, all those things. Um, and then you shove a piece of built environment into it. And um, then that's got responsibility to the planet, but it's got responsibility to the humans that have to interact with it. And I don't think there's a person alive that um, has lived in a city or in a suburban environment that hasn't experienced really poor design. And, you know, we, we evolve with it, but when it becomes um, A, highly functional, but B, beautiful, we really evolve with it. It allows us to evolve further. You know, we're, we're through the frustration of the things that don't work or the things that make no sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Agreed. Yeah. There's an awful lot of terrible architecture in the world. Like, a, isn't a, that the truth? It's it's unfortunate. It is. It is the dead honest truth. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. you spend a lot of time combating that. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred. That's probably ninety nine percent of the time gets spent. Is you know that constant um, journey of improvement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And. Mm. Uh, I've been, I've been in, in school for 30 years as an architect, getting to the point where <laughs> now the, the choices that I'm making are informed uh, by all the things that I've learned. And, you know, I get to choose where the, where the value is. I totally love that. I love that. I have, I have a, um, a friend who's not an architect, but studied architecture and uh, went, he, one day he was doing this, uh, this sort of, he was at uni doing architecture and he was talking about something with one of the tutors and he said, you know, why are all these famous architects so old? And the tutor said, well, you know, you're probably not worth anything to anybody until you're in your fifties because you <laughs> haven't done enough cycles to have learned anything. And he's like, what? And the guy said, well, you know, they have to get old because it takes time to do the job and then they learn from each job. And then, you know, it, it, it takes more than study. It's, you don't walk out and just be good at it. It takes um, experience. And he's like, right, this is why he isn't an architect. This is exactly why he's not an architect. And so, you know, they sent him. Um, so he was in Cambridge in England and they sent him to draw, you know, for part of his study. And so he went into town and he would draw some of the buildings around Cambridge and he would be sitting there with his pad and stuff. And people would look at him and go, well, what are you drawing? And he'd say, oh, I'm drawing that building over there. And he realized he could sell the pictures of the drawings. So not was he going to hand them in, <laughs> he was going to sell them. And he went, that's faster than, that's faster than building them. <laughs> and um, that changed his, he, he realized that a short cycle business meant that it didn't take him to be 50 to a make money, but also to um, be proficient at what he does. And, uh, you know, he set up a business off the back of those original drawings and then ended up mapping uh, the town of Cambridge and then ended up mapping every town in England and selling the post, not the post office box, the telephone box, locations back to the telephone company because they didn't even know where they all were that was a business model but isn't it funny yeah because of that time that it takes and the experience that drops in as you say you're 30 years a student you're still a student but 
30 years and you go, okay, I've probably got some of this now. Yeah, it is. Well, they call it, they call it the practice of <laughs> architecture for a reason. Because it, I mean, it's it's the truth. You you do get better every time, and you get you get better through making mistakes. Hopefully, they're never um, you know bad enough to be detrimental. Yes. Um, and you know that's part of the process of growing up, and you got to have you know people around you that are are mentors that are there to catch you, so mm-hmm. you don't you don't take that mistake too far. Yeah. Right. And you somehow, when you have, when you make it, you got to figure out how to fix it. So it doesn't cost the client more money. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. That's right. True. Or, or you show up with your, your tail between your legs and <laughs> you, you, you just got to speak honestly about what happened. And both of those things happen, right? Sometimes there's a workout mm-hmm. and sometimes you just, you're in a bind and you just got to show up and, Take the heat and own it. Yeah. Yeah. And look, that's part of the journey, isn't it? I always think that uh, the the brilliance of working for somebody else's is that the the most they could do is fire you. Um, But then, you know, like on the other side of it, there's no. Well, I I suppose there's people who are business people and there's people who aren't, you know, if you want to be in your own business and you want to have your own vision, then you got to do that. And you got to you got to pony up for that. Um, Yeah. But yeah, and, and then having a team that uh, is very focused on the same values, I suppose, is the other thing. So tell me, you you're, you got to Phoenix and um, obviously you've worked for some amazing companies over the years. Um, but then what struck you to go, okay, here's, this is where I am. I'm going to do this here. What took you from being a... Uh, a tutor or, you know, like a, um, you know, a lecturer and all those other things into the space of going, I'm going to do my own thing here. What, what was the, what was the turning point there? I'm not going to, what, what do I want to see that's different that I can't produce or can't do with somebody else? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, my wife always says things happen for a reason mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm always like, yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't believe in that, but then I don't know, 85. You believe in that. Yeah. <laughs> it like, makes sense. So I, I, I give her some credit for that. Uh, it's just like, I tell her I'm right. 85% of the time. Uh-huh. Um, and that's not always true, but um, you know, for me, uh, I was always fairly entrepreneurial um, as I was growing up as an architect. And so what I mean by that is, is, is two things. One, uh, I tended to do a lot of side work uh-huh. uh, because I was driven um, by, I'm driven by money, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So it's, it's good for your maybe that's because Maybe that's because I'm a little more, business savvy than maybe the the average architect is mm-hmm. um but you know when i was young it was like i had to get my student loans paid off and so mm-hmm. how do you do that what tools do i have available to do that well i could take on doing house renovations right so i would do that stuff and you know you could talk to a lot of architects and firms out there and some will sh- will will frown on that activity and others won't and I, I'm not here to say it's good or bad. I'll just tell you that it's, it was part of what made me and got me to where I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I always tended to do some side work 
Uh-huh. Um, and at the same time, you and um, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. <laughs> He's the king of side work. <laughs> but I, I always, um, I was always involved in real estate in some form or fashion. Yeah. And so I think it was those two things um, where, where, you know, when I came to Arizona, uh, I, you know, I bought a condo with a loan from my mom. And then three years later, turned that into buying a house with three, three guys and then bought a house on my own and then another house and flipped that and renovated it. And then before long, I was in apartments. Uh, and then eventually I started doing my own projects. Right. And so I, I kind of feel like those two things, which I was doing simultaneously with my core professional competency at the time, which was being an architect, Yeah. which um, I think I've been reasonably good at. It's Everybody it's, else does, even if you don't. So that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's uh, like I said, it's the practice of, right? Mm-hmm. But um, it's kind of like those three things. And so those first two things are kind of more like, personal and business oriented decisions that I made along the way. Sure. And um, they just happen to align with what I know how to do well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, which is design good, well-designed functional architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've never been an architect that's had a, you know, a, a no budget dream client. Uh, I've always worked often for institutional large scale clients yeah, okay. doing very complex buildings with complex problems uh, that take a lot of time and energy and big teams to solve. Yeah, right. Um, and so my growth as a architect and designer and you know ma- manager and eventually mentor of of others came through that path of dealing with bigger scale projects with lots of messy issues and oftentimes multiple client groups. Um, and you develop a certain skill set along the way. Yeah, or not. Or not. Or you change what you're doing, right? I was about to but say you, it goes one way or the other, doesn't it? You either yeah. grow with it and you develop that skill set and hone it. Yeah. Or you stagnate where you are and or, or, or change what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, again, I, I would say that I'm not your typical architect because I, I think I'm a little more business savvy mm-hmm. than most. Um, that's not to say it's, it's bad if you're just focused in one area or not. It, it's this just, it's just, just who you are. It's, it's just, just who, who I am. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, that's, that's the horse that I'm riding. Yeah. And, um, and, um, you know, what I've done over the years is try to try to make the most of, of that. So I would say that those entrepreneurial things and choices that I made early, uh, have always been a good complement to, um, my core professional experience. Yeah. I think the combination of them is really powerful. You know, like it, it's one thing to be able to, you know, like I choke with this in, in our studio all the time. We, we can draw anything, but A, can it be made for the 
budget that the client has? That's going to be a big, big question always. And um, B, is it even going to be fit for purpose for what they want? You know, we can draw pencil on paper is not a hard thing. You know, that's for some people, for all of us, it should be easy. That should be, you know, a joyful journey. But to actually make the nuts and bolts of it work is, you know, that's the real journey. I, I was saying to somebody just yesterday, I said, truth is, is that's probably an afternoon's work. That's all that will take. But it will take, by the time we get that to being ready, there'll be eight months of work that will happen from that, you know, that afternoon of this is where we're going to head to the outcome at the other end, you know, like the, and the, the journey as a business person is how do you make that work and make it work for the client and make it work for you and, and also maintain your profit? Because otherwise, if you go broke in the middle of it, then they're left with nobody. There's, there's the other thing, you know, like everybody needs to make their, their slice out of it, I suppose, um, and be fair and equitable with that so that at the end of it, everybody gets the outcome that they were promised or that the vision was to have. I think that it's a brilliant skill to, to be able to, to do all that you do, like absolutely, to be across it. And if it's driven by, you know, first of all, from a financial point of view, in my mind, I go, God, that's the person I want to deal with because they're going to be as careful with their money as they'll be with my money. You know, like that they 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 see money as being part of the process. Um, mm. And it's not just a, a sideline of it. It's a key function that they're looking at in this project or in this process. And so therefore we can have those conversations that dig into, well, where are we at? Where where is this, you know, where's the dollars at? Where where is the whole thing going to sit? And um, I mean, in your case, you take a hundred percent responsibility. Well, I'm sure that your wife gets 15%, you know, if it's only 85% of it, that you're right. But no, but as a, you put everything on the line, you put it all on the line um, and take the responsibility from start to finish with Boyer Vertical. And I think that is a, a noble, but it's also like a big load. And it means that you're very careful about how you do it because Financially, it's your survival as well as creating a beautiful product at the end. Right. That's that's uh, yeah. I mean, I have to. Um, I mean, I'm I'm. I wouldn't say I'm risking it all anymore, but I'm, no. I'm risking a lot. You're risking a lot. Yeah. Um, and um, but that's a privilege. Oh yeah. To be to be in that position, which you know, I I get um, I get students that come to me all the time. They're in the master's of real estate program at ASU or wherever they are. And somebody will send them over to me and they want to do what I'm doing. I'm like, look, like I didn't start doing this when I'm your age. Okay. Uh, maybe you, you can, because you have a sponsor. Uh-huh. But I, I don't, I didn't have a sponsor. You know, my parents weren't wealthy. I was going to uh, ask that question next was what your parents, like, were they, Equally as money, um, well, I don't want to say money focused. I just want to say fiscally educated or, you know, like what, how did you, did you discover it all yourself or did you come from somewhere that they 
and you just told me you didn't they didn't have like they weren't wealthy and you know giving you a yeah, sponsorship they, they weren't well i mean we, um, i wouldn't say uh i didn't go without growing no, up that's I, me I, as I mean, well both, both my parents were school teachers hard-working okay. school teachers yeah um my dad was a you know, economics and government teacher so okay he he i guess maybe had that some yeah. of those sensibilities about him but um you know the economics of of real estate is <laughs> its own cycle right volatile <laughs> extremely volatile it's, it's about you know, being ready for the unknowns because there will be lots of unknowns uh-huh. um and you you always it's like architecture you're always learning um, mm-hmm. and you have to be prepared um somebody asked me um couple months ago what my superpower was and i said it was resilience i love that Um, because i i i think i don't overreact too much although i i can i can uh, on occasion i've caught myself recently because it's just really difficult time to be building right now oh yeah probably anywhere in the world everywhere in the first world that's for sure i think i've lost my uh lost my cool a couple times in the last few months with some subcontractors but um it wasn't unfounded (laughs) yeah this is the thing you know like i was talking to a supplier yesterday and he was saying to me he said you know i feel like i've been running at this speed for you know coming up three years and uh, we were busy before but he said this is this it's like we're running kind of into the unknown, but the known. And um, he said, it, it, the resilience thing is, is we had this a very similar discussion and he was saying, I'm just fatigued. And he yeah, said, so I I, I, I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I'm worn. And I yeah. don't know when it's going to, when it's going to like release from this, that it's going to become more normalized or not back to what it was, but just, so that I feel like it's um, that we're that we've hit a plateau that I can go okay now I can put all these things safely into action you know I can I can rely on what I said last week is the same as next week um, and like you said it's an extremely difficult time to be in the construction industry and it's still probably the cheapest time that you'll ever build that's the scary part as as well right. like. You know, even though and and growth is just as unsettling as like mistake. It, it you don't know what the growth's even more in a lot of ways because you don't know quite what the next point has. That future, you're putting your foot down on something new each time, even if it was similar to the last time. It's still a new landscape every time. So financially, the world's in that place right now, and each individual. Um, I suppose zone of it is like that as well. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, fatigue is the right word. Yeah. I would say. I think I, I see it in a lot of people, and yeah. it, it affects their performance. And um, I mean, one one thing that I've also come to, you know, ten years ago, I, I was sort of buying into this whole, you know, the, the building industry is getting, it's evolving, right? And so. Uh, the notion of faster and faster and uh, mm-hmm. cheaper and cheaper and all these things like we have to figure out how to innovate. And I was trying like hell to do all those things. And you just, you end up working yourself to death to try and get better along the way. Um, 
and he sort of figured it out. And hopefully in the end, what, what she did is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but as of late, I've sort of come to the realization that um, sometimes faster and faster isn't, isn't better. And it's important um, because understanding what you, what we're doing is we're, we're building things that last a lifetime in some cases uh, or many lifetimes, many lifetimes. Hopefully, And, and even yeah. if it's temporary, temporary is, you know, five years turns into 20. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a real sense of permanence here yeah. with every decision. Yeah. And um, I've with my own team, when I catch ourselves trying to push to meet a schedule or, or get somebody into a commitment. And even with all these harebrained problems we've had yeah. right, with logistics, oh, that we can't materials yeah. increases. Yeah. And, and, and I've caught my team lately and, and had this realization that I think we need to slow down. I mean, slow down in a more thoughtful way. Yeah, because, become because proactive they, as opposed to reactive. Yeah, I mean, I I think most people do try to be proactive. Yeah, um, and and certainly design should be a proactive exercise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But um, what's happened and why so many people are fatigued is because everybody is chasing so hard to get things done that they're not thinking about the consequences of one their own actions and what their own actions cause to you yeah Uh, on the other hand in terms of like if if i make a commitment to you and then i don't follow through on it what happens downstream of that because you've probably made four other commitments because the commitment i made Mm -hmm. and -hmm. and then you take all of the of the um all the side commitments that are happening there and we just slowly decay the you you take all of that and the 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 nonsense communication that happens as a result the amount of emails or phone calls or text messages that i'm following up with you <laughs> and you compound that by you know your sphere of uh-huh. any one project or multiple projects and that's why people are so fatigued yeah right yeah so if we just slow down and and act more methodically mm-hmm. in a more intentional way mm-hmm. right with purpose and follow through mm-hmm. and exactness Oh, I love this. <laughs> I think things are going to change, but this isn't like an overnight. This isn't, it's like an aircraft carrier, right? Uh-huh. You just, don't, you just don't pivot. No, no, right? you can't turn it around on a dime. This is a this cultural is a, change that yeah. needs to happen. Yeah. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, a shift that when it, as it happens and you've got to grow through it's happening as well. You can't turn oh, it on okay. and off. You've got to grow through it's happening and, but I, I take a lot from it. Like we've found in our industry here that what did take, say, eight months now takes 12 months. Um, and, you know, as a business person, I look at that and I go, so that means that any cash flow stretches for that as well. And so then where's our balances? And it's nothing that we're doing that's taking this any longer. It's the others that we deal with that are, our process is still taking about the same amount of time. And then I look at the builders and they're in the same boat. They're going, well, what took us eight months takes us 12 months. Yeah. Um, and 
then there's when we get to the you know we're in the building stage of a project the number of material changes and stuff that we're asked to um, consider or work with I, I walked on the side of mine the other day and I saw some um, some timber like ceiling beams basically and um, I looked at them they're going to be covered up I looked at them and I went said to the builder I said nice timber and he goes man it's all I can get and these should be beautifully exposed for the grade of timber they are. Uh-huh. And he's uh-huh. going, he's going, I, they're covered. And, and he's going, yeah, man, it's all I can get. I, there isn't any other. And I so know. you just look at that and then you go, oh, we had another job that took uh, two months for practical completion from it being finished because a sheet of cladding we couldn't get. There was one sheet of cladding for a house. And you go, that means that you know, everybody's money is being stretched out. That's just the financial side. Then the, the, the owner can't move into the home um, because it's not practically completed. So then it's not off the builder's insurance and so on and so on. And you just go these little decisions along the line that um, as people get fatigued, there's more mistakes like that. And I, I take it now. I go, yeah, just take one step back and observe the landscape and then go, okay, how do we take this forward? But with so much more considered thought, I don't know a business that's in the supply chain or in anything in the supply chain in the architectural industry that hasn't had to grow or, or not had to hasn't grown or hasn't come under stress in the last, I'd say three years. Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible not to either, either you're, Either you're hurting or you're, uh, and you've had to cut staff or whatever, or you're hurting because you don't have enough staff yep. to do what you need to do, or you don't have the right people in the right places. Uh, that, yeah, yeah, right. the availability of the right expertise. And that, and look at the core, core of the industry. That's that's the big problem too. Is you're always working yourself out of business, right? Because yeah. you finish a project and then where do I take all this team? Where do I put this team, right? Yeah. So there's all these these stressors that people don't even think about, right? They're like they just want they want their. their I just house. want my house, thanks. Yeah, like, right? it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like I don't want to know what yeah. you do. I just want the. You're, you're like, well, yeah, I know, I get it, but I'm trying to where where am I putting these people next? And anyway. yeah, <laughs> no, that's a that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> we should do that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a that, you know like I I when you were saying about just, you know, slowing down and considering it, I want to dig into that a little bit more, but it's kind of like the slow food movement, you know, like, like consider every part. And then I was trying to make this analogy in my mind of yours is like, you know, um, farm to farm to table and what you do, you know, that's probably the biggest analogy. So not only do you have the land, but then you, you know, grow the beef on it or the vegetables on it and then you're in control of each step of how those will be and you've got a bit of regulation that comes in because you called yourself organic and that's no different from our city regulations or whatever and then you've got your passions and your values that you're applying to it and at the end of the day you know you serve that up to the public and um that's boy vertical that's what it does and it's no different a restaurant does it in a matter of probably if it was farm you know farm to plate it's maybe a year-long journey but yours is taking you know three to five years to do that kind of thing um 
And it's a yeah. really, a really, but with each piece being considered, that each step has to bring your values and then value to the end consumer. Like it's got to, it's got to add to that value. And then we get to sustainability as a, um, as like I can imagine in your process, there's a lot more sustainability of resource because there isn't so many extras that are dropped into it and things that you can control that, which makes it a more sustainable project. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I, uh, I try to avoid the word sustainable just mm-hmm. because I, I feel like it's, you know, it's, it's been over buzzed too many oh, yeah. times. And so uh, what I, I like to use, uh, um, I, I like to call my work and projects smart modern. Yeah, and, I like that. that. It's, a, it's a set. It's and then people think the other problem with that is when I say that they're like, "Well, does that mean the home smart? Like, what yeah, technology?" No. I'm like, no, "No, no, no, no. This is like a set of smartly curated decisions that have been put together to deliver uh, a, a living experience that is is you know it, at least better than most, if not exceptional." That's what yeah. we're after. Yeah. Right. And that, and the, in this yeah. modern time, it, it embraces, yeah. it embraces the moment. Yeah. And, and like when I was doing art, art house, I used to tell people, they're like, well, you know, what's different about this? And I'm like, well, sit down here and look and let's watch the way the light comes in the, you know, look where the windows are. The windows are against the walls. So when the light comes in, it paints the walls and blah, blah, blah. And like, if you just stick that window in the middle of the room, like it is in 95% of the rest of the houses that you can go look in, it has a much different effect than if you put it there. Right. And if you put it in a way that is protected from the sun and it's in the, you know, depending on your climate, you want it in the sun or you don't want it in the sun. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's all these choices. I love be- that. I love that. Anal- that the way you explained that there, you know, like yeah, if the window is positioned, you know, at this point or this way, then you're getting the play of the light. And yeah. whilst, you know, a lot of people might, yeah, like, okay, so it's bright in here or it's not bright or whatever it is, is go back to what you just said with that, you know, that slowing down and being considered a in the design, but be in the life, be, be when you live inside it, yeah. let yeah. yourself they know. observe they know that the light. Difference. Yeah. They feel it when they walk in. Yeah. They don't always know how to describe it, no. but they know it because yeah. it's a feeling that comes across them. Right. And I, I you know, I try to tell, well, I, I used to tell people, I think more people are getting it now, but um, if you spend as much time thinking about your living environment as you did about the car you chose to <laughs> drive, right. <laughs> your, your living environment would be much more uh, efficient and beautiful than, than your car. Yeah. Right. But absolutely, you've got, you know, 42 different brand choices of car, depending on your, 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 you know, your, uh, your discretionary income level. Um, And, uh, you know, even at each level, you can, you've got all these choices. Right. Um, And so if if you can package that same kind of consideration up into your living environment, and I think people are doing that more now. They're thinking more. Certainly, with with COVID, they spent a lot more time at home. Oh, I right? think I think it's been a the great realization. 
Yeah. 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 Work-life balance has shifted. Having that space at home is super critical. Having dedicated outdoor space, mm -hmm. indoor outdoor connections. I mean, these are all things that have been done for centuries. Oh, architects but, have been talking about them for as long as there's been a, yeah, a discipline. Yeah, um, yeah. But people have, you know, like I said at the start, there's an awful lot of terrible design out there. People have seen those shortcomings um, they've experienced those shortcomings and then experiencing them, they're saying, I know that, you know, my friend Sally has better. And so I know that their house is better suited than my house is for this or for what's happened. You know, hers makes a better homeschool than mine does, um, you know, and when we both work from here, it's better or whatever. And then they start to consider what's been, what's missing and then their connection to nature has been another massive one. You know, the rise in biophilic design. I mean, it's been around for ever. And then you go even as a name and a, a, a genre or whatever. It's that's from the eighties, I think 86 or something. And then you go, you look at this and you go, now we're back, you know, like for any of us who are old enough to know, we go, this is the seventies, man. When we put indoor planting everywhere, you know, but that wasn't driven by just necessarily a trend cycle. That was driven by a pandemic that people lost connection. They had lost connection over many years with nature. And all of a sudden they went, how do I just solve a little bit of this for me closer? Because they suddenly had a need when it was taken away from them. They mm -hmm. recognized their need. You know, I think there's so many things like that, that the pandemics taught us. Um, and like you say, makes a better environment, like make it, make it better for people. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's an exciting journey really, when you think like that. So tell me about art house, because that's something that people are already experiencing. Um, and then tell me about karma. So, um, so our art house was, um, conceived in just 2013. Mm -hmm. And it was really my first, it was my first foray as, as a developer, architect as developer. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't the builder on that one. Right. Like I, on, on Karma, on Karma, I've added that, that component uh, uh -huh. to, to my team. Um, but, um, you know, Karma or Art House was kind of born out of, uh, again, those, those things that I mentioned before, the, the fact that I had this sort of entrepreneurial sense and I had clients that were developers that I was working for and that they served as mentors in some, some small or large way, depending on what the, what, whatever was going on at the time. Um, but I just had always kind of wanted to, to get into this space. And so I had owned real estate and I'd bought and sold real estate and things like that. And um, certainly I knew how to put a building together. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking 
let's say three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.